Our scripture reading for our, our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Can I ask you this question? Are you humble? Are you a humble person? Now, this question is much more difficult to answer than you must first realize. Because if we answer this question affirmatively, we would be dead wrong. And we would need to be humbled. But if we answer this question negatively, we would be right. But we would still need to be humbled. Listen to what the book of Proverbs says about pride and humility. Proverbs 11:2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But when the humble, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 18:12, before destruction a man's heart is haughty or prideful. But humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22:4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So clearly, humility is of the essence for the Christian life. Only the humble, only the meek will inherit the earth. Humility is a sign of strength. But pride is a sign of weakness. But our greatest problem is that humility is not native to our hearts. We're not born with it. Instead, we're plagued with natural pride. We all are. It it, it reveals itself in our hearts in different ways. But we all struggle with it. Often, we even tend to celebrate pride because we confuse it for boldness and assertiveness. But listen to what 4th century theologian St. Augustine of Ipo once said about pride. There never can have been and never can be and there never shall be any sin without pride. Pride is at the root of every sin. Pride can explain every sin that still lingers in our hearts. But today, we meet a truly humble woman. 
a woman that astonished Jesus with her great faith. And yet, this meeting between Jesus and this woman is one of, those most un, one of the most unlikely meetings in the entire Bible. Out of all the encounters that Jesus has had thus far in the Gospel of Mark, this woman was the least likely to get to him. This was a meeting between a man and a woman. An affront to cultural standards. In Jesus' legalistic culture, Jew Jewish women could never sit at the feet of a rabbi. But this was not a meeting between a rabbi and a Jewish woman. This was a meeting between a Jewish rabbi and a Gentile woman. Jewish law and tradition, they were all designed to keep such an encounter from even ever happening. But perhaps what is most unlikely about this meeting is that Jesus meets this woman by a dining room table. We saw last week that Jesus, right, that, that, that we saw last week that Jews observed dietary laws, food laws, purposefully, so that they could segregate themselves from other nations. It would have been completely culturally unacceptable for this woman to approach Jesus at a dining room table. And yet, against all odds, this woman, completely cut off from the covenants and promises, completely without hope, through faith, finds hope in Christ. Friends, Jesus is always approachable when we embrace a humble faith. Jesus is always accessible when we, when we approach him by faith, vested in humility. Maybe you're here with us today and you're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. You're at the right place. Perhaps you're asking yourself very important questions. Perhaps you're asking yourself the question, is there a God? Does he exist? Does he care about me? And if he does, how do I come to him? This woman will model to all of us today what it means to approach God in God's terms. To come to Jesus with faith and humility and to find hope and power in him. So let's turn to our text today as we consider the interaction between the Seraphonician woman and Jesus. First, I want you to notice this. Notice the woman's humble posture. Notice the woman's humble posture. After the interaction we saw last week between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus departs from the region he was likely around the Sea of Galilee to a region uh, where you find two cities, the cities of Tyre and Sidon. If you look back at Mark 3, 
verse 8, we are actually told that Jesus' fame had already come to these cities. So the people in these cities knew about Jesus. These this cities uh, were at the opposite end of the other Gentile country that Jesus went to. So Jesus had gone to the Decapolis, right? Remember when he met the Gadarene demoniac? And that was on the east side of the lake known as the Sea of Galilee. But these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, were cities located northwest of Capernaum. These cities were located in modern-day Lebanon, and they were right by the Mediterranean Sea. These were largely Gentile cities. It is not at all surprising that this journey into the Gentile region follows Jesus' earth-shattering declaration we saw last week that all foods were made clean. Jesus was saying, my ministry will go forth. So Jesus goes into the nations. As he arrives at this region, Jesus enters a house, attempting to be inconspicuous. But Mark tells us that he could not be hidden. In verse 25, we're told that immediately after Jesus enters this house, a woman approaches him. Mark tells us that this woman was a Syrophoenician, which means that she was from a region called Phoenicia, which encompasses the cities of Tyre and Sidon. The Gospel of Mark describes this woman as a Canaanite, which is just equally accurate. Phoenician or Syrophoenician is the Greek term for this woman's ethnicity, and Canaanite is the Semitic or the Hebrew uh, term. This woman had a need. She had a great need. Her daughter was possessed by demons. And if you have children, you know that we suffer more when our children suffer than when we ourselves suffer. If we could suffer for our children, we would. But this woman was without hope. So her need drove her to a place of humility. Her need drove her to the feet of Jesus. Which is a great reminder. We can be tempted to think that when we face hardship in life, we're not experiencing the goodness of God. But whenever our needs drive us to the feet of Jesus, these needs are gifts from God to us. 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. We must identify with this woman in her suffering. Because if we identify with her in her suffering, we can also identify with her in the hope she finds in Christ. We must learn from her. Notice here her posture. 
she fell down at the feet of Jesus. There's so much that her physical posture is actually expressing here. She falls at the feet of Jesus because she is weak, because she's needy. She falls at the feet of Jesus because she is at the end of her strength. She can't hold herself upright. She falls at the feet of Jesus because she is helpless. But ultimately, she falls at the feet of Jesus because she recognizes that he is Lord. Sometimes our greatest expression of worship are born out of our greatest distress. Sometimes we can only see the lordship of Jesus when we come to learn and experience the fact that we are not Lord of our own lives. The Gospel of Matthew tells us the same story in chapter 15, but Matthew recounts the story with a woman speaking in first person. So in Matthew 15, 25, we read this, but she came and knelt before him, that is Christ, saying, these are the words of the woman's words, Christ, Lord, help me. Her posture and her words recognized both, both her humility, inability, and also the power and lordship of Christ. We've seen several people in the gospel of Mark in a similar posture. We saw the gathering demoniac fall at the feet of Jesus. We saw the woman with a bleeding discharge fall at the feet of Jesus. We saw Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, fall at the feet of Jesus. What is the common denominator among these people? These people recognize their great need for Christ, and they recognize the Lordship of Christ. Notice how eclectic this group of people is. A Gentile man possessed by a legion, thousands of demons. A Jewish woman who was ceremonially unclean and cut off from society. A Jewish man of the, of the religious order, respected, and fully dignified. And now, a Gentile woman outside of the covenant of promises. What is this telling us? What does this group of people tell us? Here is what this group of people tell us. All are welcome at the feet of Lord Jesus. Anyone who approaches our Lord with humility and faith will find room at his feet. Jesus lacks no room at his feet. Anyone who comes to him will be welcome. At the feet of Jesus, our social status, our gender, our past, our religious practices, they become leveled. And all are welcome. So if you don't find yourself fit to come to Jesus, if you don't meet the requirements, 
If all you have is a broken life and a broken soul, friend, you qualify to come to the feet of Jesus. Remember the words of the great hymn by English hymn writer Joseph Hart. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. So this woman brought what she had, her needs. She brought her daughter, her demon-possessed daughter. Now, one of the aspects of this story that sometimes gets overlooked is the fact that Satan hates children. We see this very clearly in our society, don't we? We see it in the culture of death that reigns through abortion. We see it in the fact that society has bought into the lie that children are a burden. Birth rates are plummeting all over the West. In Japan today, more adult diapers are sold than children and baby diapers. We see it in the the LGBTQ agenda to indoctrinate our children as they try to confuse them about their gender identity. We see it, we saw it this week, did we not? We saw it this week in a senseless shooting that took place in Nashville, Tennessee. Someone who hates Jesus, someone who hates Jesus' people, someone who hates Jesus' children planned an attack on a Christian community, on a Christian school, killing three adults and, yes, three nine-year-old children. Satan hates children. Children are not immune to the pain and suffering of this world, to the schemes of the devil. Children are very often prey to the schemes of Satan in significant ways. But the child in a story had something special. The child in our story had a mother that understood what she needed to do in light of Satan's attack. This child had a mother that knew she needed to run to Jesus for help. Parents, grandparents, We don't just need to tell our children about Jesus. We need to tell Jesus about our children. One of the most powerful tools we have for the regeneration of our children is intercession. Praying to Jesus for our children. It is Jesus who saves our children. So go before his throne of grace on behalf of your children and plead with him for mercy. You know, my parents pray for me. They have their entire lives, and they still do today because they know how badly I need it. Often right before I come up to preach, my parents will tell me that they're praying for me. Just last night, my mom was telling me that she has been praying for me. Parents, you may graduate from a lot of things in parenting, diapers and discipline. Those don't last forever. But you will never graduate from the responsibility 
and privilege of bringing your children through prayer before God's throne of grace. And then I pray for Boaz and Elise, not just daily, but we pray throughout the day. We proclaim blessings on them throughout the day with the hope that the Lord will shine His face upon them. Our greatest daily prayer is not for their health or their wealth or their prosperity. Our greatest daily request is not for their behavior or that they are well-liked. The greatest prayer that we repeat every day is this. Lord, regenerate the hearts of our children. And friends, I want to encourage you to do the same. Plead with the Lord. Wrestle with the Lord. So that the Lord may give your children, your children life. Care for your children's soul. Follow this woman's example. Now, we consider her posture. Now, let's consider her answer. Her calm answer. In verse 27, Jesus responds to the woman. His response at face value could seem problematic. We often have in our minds a picture of Jesus who is always gentle, always calm, almost perennially motherly. The Jesus of verse 27 might not fit, might not fit our preconceptions of who Jesus is. I mean, we understand when Jesus is harsh with the scribes and Pharisees. They deserve it. We understand when Jesus flips tables and whips people out of the temple. There is a reason for that. But a woman in need, a mother pleading for mercy, I mean, there is nothing more tender and genuine than a woman pleading for her children. But Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So at face value, there are two issues here that I see with Jesus' word. I think we're going to see are not non-issues at all. First, he seems to be denying her request. He seems to be sending away a concerned mother. And second, he refers to the woman as a dog. That sounds and is insulting. So was Jesus being overly harsh with the Syrophoenician woman? Was Jesus not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit of kindness and gentleness? Well, let's parse what Jesus is saying here. First, I want to say this. Jesus was not saying no to the woman's request. He's saying, first, first, let me feed the children of Israel. Jesus is saying, I came first to these ethnic people that God has chosen. The time of the Gentiles 
has not yet come. Now notice what the Apostle John says in the beginning of his gospel. He, that is Jesus, came to his own. What is this? He came to proclaim the good news to the Jewish people. But what's the problem? His own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him. What is this? All nations. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul fleshes this out in Romans 11 when he says that a partial hardening has, has come over the heart of Israel, right? And why, what is, why is that happening? So that the Gentiles may come in. This is what John is saying here. That was the purpose, right, of the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people. But Jesus is saying, this time has not yet come. Your time has not yet come. Jesus came first to share the gospel, the good news, with the Jews. But when they rejected it, then the gospel went out to the whole world. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The Greek is another way of saying Gentile. Chronologically, Jesus is saying, this is not your time yet, woman. Her time would come, but it was not there yet. Jesus' mission would first need to be fulfilled at the cross. When the Greeks come and ask the disciples of Jesus to see Jesus, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' response is, I have not yet been glorified. What does that mean? It means that once Jesus was glorified, then it was time for the Gentiles to come to him. The provision made to Israel was great, and yet it was provisory. It was going to become more all-encompassing. The provision made for sins in Leviticus was provisory. Look at Hebrews 10, 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this provision did not accomplish redemption. Jesus' death accomplished redemption. So listen at the end to the words of, of Jesus' sacrifice. These are the peoples crying out to Jesus. Why uh, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain. Jesus died. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. And what is God's ransom people? People from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the power of the blood of Christ. This is the power of the gospel. In Adam, all have sinned, all nations. No one is born with hope in this world, but Christ is the hope of the nations. That woman's waiting today is our reality. That woman's hope today is our reality. Notice that in Revelation 5, Revelation 5 purchased the nations. 
through his blood. Jesus died so that we would have a so that he would have a ransom people comprised of all all Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus is the savior of this world. And there are no exceptions. Every tribe and language and people and nation will come to Christ and declare his lordship. Friends, the gospel reminds us that no one obeys God. The gospel reminds us that all peoples have rebelled against God. We align ourselves with Satan and not God by nature. We are enemies deserving of wrath and punishment. This is true of every nation under the heavens. But Jesus loves the nations. He came and bled, died, taking on the punishments that we deserve. This is the message of the gospel. And today, this offer of forgiveness is made available to you. You can be a part of this ransom people. How? How can you access the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of your sins if you will just believe? Just faith. Believe that Jesus died the death you deserve to die. You will be forgiven. And this picture that we just read about in Revelation 5, 9, you are in it. You are in it. You are part of this people. It is faith alone that saves. And in our text today, we see faith at its best. But what about the word dog? What about when Jesus refers to this woman as a dog? Well, here's what I think is happening here. Jesus is not insulting the woman. He is testing the woman. Some can take offense at Christ and give up on their faith. Christ is described in the New Testament as a rock of offense. But Christ can also be the cornerstone of our faith. What is the difference? The difference is faith. God's promises are granted to us by faith. And often God will bring trials, hardships, difficulty in our lives, in order to test our faith. Think of the example of Abraham. For 100 years, he waited for the promise of a son. God grants him a son, and he tells him to sacrifice his only son. Just think of the internal struggle that, Abra that Abraham had to go through. And yet, he trusted God through it all. Abraham had faith. Therefore, Abraham saw God's promises fulfilled. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, by the way, this little while means our entire life, though now for a little while, if necessary, this actually means since it's necessary, you have been grieved with trials by various trials. So that, what is the purpose of trials? Peter is about to tell us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes though, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? You see that picture of the revelation of Jesus Christ? Okay? Only those whose faith are tried will stand before Christ. Trials, difficulties, they shape us for eternity. They shape us for our experience of eternal life. Trials in life come for our good. We can only be spiritually victorious if our faith is tried and true. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson once said, Christianity is not the removal of suffering, but the addition of grace to endure the suffering triumphantly. I don't think we can fully appreciate how difficult it was for this woman to overcome the hard words of Jesus. I mean, dogs in our culture often live better than humans, don't they? I was at Costco this week and saw some pretty nice-looking food. I thought, let me see what this is about. And then I realized I was looking at dog food. I did not buy it. But at the time of Jesus, you did not buy dog food in the market. At the time of Jesus, dogs were filthy animals, violent scavengers. And Jesus does use a word here that is a little softened in our passage by the diminutive. But believe me, he is not referring to this woman even as a household dog. My dad often shares the story of how my great-grandfather came to faith. He was the first of our family to believe in Jesus. He was invited to an evening service at a church, and he, was, he accepted the invitation. But on his way to the church, he had to go through a street filled with ravenous street dogs. If you've ever spent time in a third-world country, you know the scene. But he was a man of his word, so my dad says that he grabbed a long stick and he swung his way through the dogs. That evening he heard the gospel and came to faith. These are the dogs that Jesus is speaking of. There is an offense here that we must not try to soften. Jews refer to Gentiles as dogs. Dogs were like pigs. Dogs were animals that were better left off outside the city. So this woman is now faced with a dilemma. How will she, how will she deal with this apparent offense? Does she overcome this offense? Or does she give up on her request? Notice her response. Notice how calm and sober-minded she is. Notice how she wasn't offended by Jesus. Notice how she did not stumble on Jesus, but she was filled with faith. She was filled with humility. She was filled with perseverance that can only be born of faith. In verse 28, she says, yes, Lord. In other words, she's saying, you speak truth. 
I accept the label. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The woman's response, in other words, was this. I know there is enough grace in you, Jesus, even for an outcast like me. Do you ever think, Lord, you could make this easier for me? Lord, you could make my life easier. I love the character. You, you might have heard me say before, but I love the character of Web TV in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Right before he sings the iconic song, If I Were a Rich Man, he says a short monologue. And he says these words, Dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it is no shame to be poor, but it is no great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? TV verbalizes here what we often think, right? God's got this wrong. There are blessings that he's withholding from me. God is not working out all things for my good. He should have given me more comfort. He should have made me more influential, more powerful, more skilled, more attractive. Just two inches taller. And yet, through our strengths and weaknesses, God is working out all things for our good. He has never gotten anything wrong. We may look at our past and wish we hadn't experienced some of the things that we had experienced, and yet, God meant for everything to happen. God has not gotten one thing wrong in our entire lives, our joys and our sorrows, our successes and our failures, the pain and pleasure we've experienced, these all have come from the hand of the Lord. The Heidelberg Catechism says, all things must work together for my salvation. And this is a glorious truth. Friends, God is not ultimately concerned with our comfort today. He is concerned with our destiny. God wants to bring you to heaven. And if he needs to put pain and suffering in your path, he will. And if your life needs to be more difficult than you think it should be in order for God to bring your faith to its fruition, he will. Friends, heaven is a place for those who persevere in faith through pain and suffering. In the account of God, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to the woman, O woman, great is your faith. Be done to you as you desire. This woman went home and found her daughter free, delivered, lying in bed. And this just tells us faith is the power that moves the heart of Christ. Faith that is humble, faith that is persistent, faith that perseveres through the test. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Is your faith being challenged today? Are certain circumstances in your life making it difficult for you to persevere in your Christian walk? 
Are the cares of this world squeezing the joy out of your life? Are you tempted to believe that God is not for you, but He is against you? Can I remind you of what Christ has already done for you? If you're in Christ, He's already died for you. And so, brothers and sisters, this woman had a faith that looked forward to what Christ was yet to accomplish. But our faith looks back. Our faith looks back at the finished work on the cross. Our faith looks back at the words, it is finished. And there is nothing left for us to do. Our faith looks back at the vindication of the empty tomb and the power of the resurrection. Jesus died and rose again. This means trials have a purpose and trials are not permanent. This means that any trial that we face today is only temporary. But one day, we who persevere in our trust in Christ will hear, along with that woman, great is your faith. This table that is set before us is a reminder of the finished work of Christ. It is a reminder for us that Jesus bled and died and his body was crushed on our behalf. This table proclaims the gospel. This table proclaims hope. So at this point, I would like to invite the deacons to come and sit um, in the first pew. The first pew needs to be available to the deacons. Um, and uh, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. You may be seated. We observe uh, the Lord's Supper month, and we do so because our Lord Jesus Christ has told us to observe the ceremony. We call this an ordinance because we receive it as an order from our Lord Jesus Christ. In this table, there are two elements, the bread and the cup. And these two elements both represent the death of Christ, the death by which we live. These elements are the elements that are given to the church. So those who approach this table ought to be baptized believers resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us today and you are not trusted in Christ, we would just so respect you if you just let the elements pass. And if you'd like to participate in this table with us in the future, we would love to talk to you about what that means. This is a family meal. As we are eating this meal together, we are proclaiming to one another, right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is ours. Jesus is yours. We're encouraging one another to remember the sacrifice of Christ. So the deacons will pass out the elements, but we will wait because we take this meal together. I will designate the time for that. As the deacons pass the elements out, this is a great time for you to think, examine your heart. 
Are you holding on to sin? Is there sin in your life that you are practicing without repenting? And friends, this is the time for us to say, Lord, grab a hold of my heart. Forgive me of my sins. This is the time for us to repent of our sins. This is, a, this is a constant reminder for us that repentance is ongoing in the Christian faith. So at this moment, I'm going to ask the deacons to please stand and we'll start passing out the elements.
Let's pray before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we recognize that we do not approach this table through any merits of our own. We recognize, Lord, that we can only rest in the finished sacrifice of Christ in our behalf. So, Father, we thank you because Christ is ours. Therefore, we can approach you through his righteousness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we also take up an offering um, today. We are taking up an offering for our food pantry. We seek in this way to meet the needs of the community around us. You can leave your offering at the back in the offering box, or the ushers will be at the back as well to collect the offerings. 